So we're in Exodus chapter 3 this morning. Last week, Jason preached out of the first 12 verses of this chapter where Moses encounters a burning bush, a bush that is burning with flame but is not consumed. And out of this burning bush, God himself speaks to Moses. He says that this is holy ground. and He addresses Moses. And we considered last week the, the holiness and the nearness of God. Today, we're going to consider the name of God, which leads us as a church to consider the aseity or the self-existing nature of God. Let's begin by reading Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 22. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you. And, have been, and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. The theological word aseity is not a very common word in our day. Most of us don't know what that word means, and most of us would not get very excited about hearing an entire sermon about it. Aseity feels like a term that the ancient fathers, fathers would have called a special, special council together in order to discuss and to debate endlessly. Or, I'll say it, he sounds like a Marvel character's name from Doctor Strange, right? You have Calcius and the Ancient One, and then you have Aseity. This is a word that we are just not familiar with, and the, the lack of familiarity with it can lead us to be somewhat indifferent towards it. 
But my friends, the aseity of God is not a small thing. This is not some ancient philosopher's musings about God. No, the aseity of God is central to the Christian's life because the aseity of God is central to who God is himself. And we see it here in this text. Aseity is the property by which something or someone exists of and from itself. In other words, aseity speaks of God's self-existing nature. He is not dependent on anyone or on anything. And that probably sounds fine to you. In fact, if you had been asked earlier this week by someone if you believed that God was dependent on anyone or anything to exist, you probably would have quickly said no and then moved quickly on. But what you might not have realized is that in that moment you were espousing the doctrine of aseity and you were speaking of one of the most foundational truths that our God speaks about himself. And you might not have known that you were speaking of one of the most comforting truths that can be spoken about God in his word. Church, the aseity of God is not for ivory towers of theology and philosophical thought. No, the self-existence of God is meant by God to care for your soul today. It was meant to care for Moses and the Israelites here in Exodus chapter 3, and it's supposed to encourage and strengthen us as well. Listen, there's nothing in our lives, apart from God, that is self-existing. And so it can be hard to understand what it really is and what effect it should have on our souls. But I was trying to think about this, and Jason and I were actually laughing about it. Like, it's so hard to come up with illustrations that capture these glorious realities about God. What does it mean to be self-existent? What does that feel like? What's the good of that? And I thought about it, and I I thought about there moments in life where, where things happen for us, and we don't have to do anything to contribute. So we all love the Roomba, right, and how it vacuums our home without us needing to do anything. We like self-cleaning ovens and other automatic things. We love when our our gas tank is full and we're on a road trip and we don't have to think about the gas tank for a long time. We love when we settle in for that movie on a Friday night. All the chores have been done. The movie has been selected. Your blanket is there. You've got your snacks by your side. Your people are around you. And for the next three hours, you can just be. You can just enjoy that time. You don't need to do anything. None of those things even scratch the surface of what aseity is, but they, 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 they might hint at some of the value, some of the feelings of joy that can be found when we consider the self-existence of our God. That our God exists entirely in himself. His gas tank does, never, does not ever need to be filled up. He doesn't have a list of chores that needs to be done before he can rest. Doing things does not tire him in any way at all because he is entirely self-existent. He is everything that he needs right within himself. In order to enjoy life, you and I need to put work into life. We're always dependent on other things and we need to attend to those things. We need to eat and we need to sleep and we need to work and we need to pay the bills If we want to have a cool Super Bowl party later today, we need to prepare in order to make it happen. It doesn't just appear. But that's not so with God. He exists in his abundance entirely within himself, and he has never been dependent on anyone or anything. 
Church, the aseity of God is a powerful, powerful doctrine, and if rightly understood, it will greatly encourage your soul today. In the midst of the craziness of life, in the midst of the, the crazy schedules that we have, in the midst of our weariness, the aseity of God is for you today. The main idea for our sermon is simply this. Our God exists apart from us, but yet works mightily for us. Our God exists apart from us, but yet works mightily for us. And we have three points. Point number one, he exists apart from us. We can see that in verses 13 to 15. Point number two, he sees us. That's going to be in verses 16 to 17. And then point number three, he works for us. And that's going to be in verses 18 to 22. Let's begin with the first point. Point number one, he exists apart from us. So the first 12 verses of this chapter, Moses is is postured before the Lord in the burning bush, and he's postured in general humility. He takes off his shoes, as God says, because he is standing on holy ground. He responds to the Lord in verse 4 by saying, here I am, which biblically speaking is a way of saying, I'm here to serve, please direct me. But as the call of God on his life becomes a little bit more clear, Moses realizes that God is actually telling him to go back to Egypt, to go back to the greatest superpower nation in the world, to go back to Egypt where he has a death sentence on his head, to go back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh and to tell him what he does not want to hear. And Moses begins to process all of this, and he's a little, well, Lord... I want to serve you. Here I am. But that seems like a really, really, really big thing to ask. And I'm just not so sure about it. He he grows in his uncertainty. So then he begins to ask questions of God. And God is gracious to answer him as he asks these questions. Last week in verses 11 to 12, Moses started by asking God about himself. He said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? But if you remember, God did not even give him an answer to that question. Instead of answering who Moses is, God says in verse 12, but I will be with you. God orients Moses entirely away from himself, Moses, and entirely around who God is. This is not a matter of Moses and his level of gifting. It's not a matter of how skilled or wise or discerning Moses is. God himself will go with Moses. But then, Moses asked the, the next logical question. Okay, Lord, if it doesn't matter who I am, then, then who is it that is going with me? Look at verses 13 to 15. It says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel, and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and then they ask me, What is his name? Moses just wants to know, What shall I say to them? Moses knows that that he's already tried to help the Israelites once before, back in chapter 2, and they did not want his help back then. So he's imagining that they're going to want to listen to him even less now, 40 years later. And so he wants to know, God, who is it that is sending me? Who is speaking? Who am I speaking on behalf of? Why should I be confident about what you are telling me to do? Friends, we can kind of relate to Moses in this, can't we? 
Moses was raised in a polytheistic culture. There, there were many gods to believe in and to trust in in Egypt. Many things to lean on. And, and while it seems like Moses believed in the one true God who was speaking to him here, he is still wanting to have a little bit more clarity a little bit more clarity on, on how this God speaking to him out of the bush is different or distinct from all the other gods out there. He wants to be able to tell the Israelites something that will hopefully build their confidence beyond himself. Moses is basically saying, okay, God, you're going to be with me. Thank you. But what sets you apart from all the other gods out there? Why should I be confident in you alone? Why should the Israelite people respond when I speak on your behalf? He says, who is it that is sending me back to the most dangerous empire in the world? And friends, this feels like a very legitimate question, doesn't it? That there are many things that we can put our trust in today. Many gods that we could put our confidence in and live our lives for. So isn't it appropriate to want to know more about who this God is that we believe in? Who is it that we trust together this morning? Who is it that we are singing to this morning? Who is it that we seek to be obedient towards? Who is it that we are seeking to live our lives as a local church family for on a daily basis? Oftentimes, we can fail in our obedience because we forget who he truly is and what he's done and how he's different from all the other gods around us. It can weaken us, and so we need to be reminded. And God is so merciful to remind us. He's so merciful to speak directly to Moses. God, God says to Moses, he says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Once again, God does not exactly answer Moses in a direct or seemingly helpful way. In fact, what God says to Moses here almost creates more questions than answers, right? Like, what does this really mean? I, I am who I am? What, what is that? I will be who I will be? It could be translated as, what does that mean? It does not at first seem to give Moses any more than what he had before he asked the question. But friends, we must see that what God says to Moses here is exactly what he needed to hear in this moment. And it is exactly what you and I need to hear together today as well. First of all, first of all, just the very fact that God says what he says here about himself is a little bit confusing. That's actually a good thing. Mo Moses was, was looking for a nice little clean label to put over God. He, he wanted a simple name. Let me tell the, the Israelites that I come on behalf of the God of power, or I'm coming on behalf of the God of deliverance, or I'm coming on behalf of the God of love, or the God of forgiveness, or the God of goodness. Moses wants to be able to, to give the Israelite people a, a name or a truth about God in which to strengthen and encourage them. And at first, God seems to ignore that request altogether. But in reality, God has given Moses and the Israelites exactly what they need most. The fact that God does not use a neat or simple label or title to describe himself, church, it reminds us that our God is unsearchable in his greatness. 
He is the all-wise, the all-powerful, the omniscient, the all-present, the all-loving God. He can't be put into your box. No single title will suffice to describe who this God is. And so he just says of himself, I am that I am. I exist in myself. The only way to adequately describe me in my fullness is that I am. I am according to my own nature, not according to your definitions or expectations. Now, we, we could talk about the name of God for days here. This self-description of God has been a point of extensive conversation for centuries and centuries because this passage is so important to our understanding of God because it is the first place that God names himself. Other people have named God throughout the book of Genesis in response to certain attributes, but this is the first time that God names himself, and there's something holy and transcendent about this moment. And so people since this moment have sought to honor and revere this name because the third commandment says that we shall not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. His name is holy. But part of the struggle is to know whether God, when God actually gives his name to Moses. So in verse 14, when he says, I am who I am, is that, is that his name? Or is that just a self-description of his name, which he gives in verse 15 when he says, the Lord has sent me to you. I think it would seem that the Lord is his name in verse 15, and that in verse 14 when he says, I am who I am, that's just a self-description of his essence. So as best as we can, we can tell, they basically mean the same thing. The Lord, when it's in all capital letters in your Bible, when it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is used most throughout the Bible to speak of God, and it is speaking of this name. It means he who is. Or according to his own words, I am who I am. The, the Lord specifically uses this name to speak of himself. In chapter 15, chapter, verse 3, Moses will say, the Lord is his name. So the Lord, in all caps, is a Hebrew word. They didn't have vowels. That consists of these four letters. Y-H-W-W. And the Jewish people considered it so sacred that they, they sought to never speak it directly. And so the pronunciation has kind of been lost. But YHWH and the different variations even found in this text will most likely translate to the name Yahweh. Yahweh, which likely just simply means to be. Or he who is. Or according to verse 14, I am who I am. And there's a lot of mystery here. God intentionally does not put himself into a box. His nature does not deserve a simple label. The God that we worship, the God that you and I follow today and this week, the God that we devote ourselves to is best described as the one who is. He is. He just exists. He says, I am who I am. And it's in the present tense. So it's not I am what I was before. I am what I am slowly becoming. I am who I am right now. I simply exist in myself. And friends, listen, this, this self-description of God, it speaks of his aseity. The one 
who describes himself as I am who I am, that is the one who finds his existence or his beginning in no one or nothing but himself. This is why the burning bush is such an apt picture in this moment because it is a a fire that is burning but not needing any fuel to burn. So it is with God. He's always existed. He's always been. He will never stop existing. He will never stop being. He can't say... He can't say, I am the one that came from the stars. He can't say, I am the one who came from matter colliding together in a bang. He can't say, I am the one that you have conjured up in your collective minds together. No, I am that I am. That's who our God is. He says, I simply exist. I've always existed and I will never stop existing. Nothing can define me. No word in your dictionary will suffice. Here I am, Moses, right here. Moses, I am not even going to try to give you all the other attributes that might come close to describing me because you can't compare me. I am that I am. Church, listen. What God does here for Moses is exactly what you and I need in our lives today. The doctrine of aseity, the the doctrine of God's self-existent nature It can and should change everything in our lives. Because listen, it it sets him apart. It sets him apart entirely from everything else in our lives. And it, it helps us because it orients us to the ultimate reality. In all the chaos in all the confusion, in all of your tiredness and in the seemingly pointlessness and, and vanity of life, God says, here I am. I exist. Have you ever tried to build something without having clear lines or definitions as to to what to build or how to build it? A house needs a strong foundation. If you have a weak foundation, a cracked foundation, or if you have a foundation without straight lines, that house is going to either crumble or just be built wrong. It's going to go askew. Recently, we built a a deck, and and the need for a plumb line in order to lay each plank well, in order for them not to drift farther and farther away, is really important. We created this parking spot, and in order to, to put each block, we needed a plumb line to direct us where to go. Friends, the aseity of God is the plumb line for the entire universe. The fact that he exists in himself and of himself, it gives us lines to follow, because this universe did not come out of nothingness. Because we are not humanists who say that matter, the matter of this world is all that there is. Because we believe that there is a divine being who is entirely separate from this material world. Guess what? That means that he defines everything. Because he's the cause, because he's the ultimate first power, because he is that, he therefore defines everything that follows. He defines what is valuable in your life. He defines what is true and false in your life. He defines what is moral and immoral. The, the aseity of God, it just it brings clarity into your life, Christian, and we need that clarity. We need to turn away from everything else that is claiming to have authority and say, this is the God that I will give my entire existence to follow. I want nothing else because he is the one, the only one who exists apart from everything else. And so when we see him and we acknowledge that he exists in himself, Oh, let's give ourselves to him. There is clarity for your life in this. We want purpose in life. There's purpose in knowing this God who exists in and of himself. We want hope and peace and goodness in life. We can find that in him.
Well, I should say we can find that in him if this God who exists in himself is also a God who cares and loves the people that he has made. Because we need to be honest, he could be a God who is powerful and who exists in himself, but who is unloving and even cruel towards the world that he has made. But that's not our God. And that brings us to our second point. Point number two, he sees us. He sees us. So verses 13 to 15, God speaks his name. He says, I am who I am. He, he exists in himself. But again, friends, that truth alone would be a fearful thing. If this, if this self-existent God does not also care for the people that he has made, he could be a deistic God, a God who is there, the original mover, the original force, but one who is entirely indifferent to the affairs of this world and to the affairs of your life. That would be a bad thing. We would have no comfort and no hope in a God like that. But that is emphatically not what we see in this text. Now look at what it says in verse 16. God says to Moses, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, I'm just going to pause there, Redeemer Fellowship, God has gathered us together to hear these words from him this morning. He wants us to listen to this goodness. He says, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, listen to these words, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. I love those words. I love that word observe in verse 16. That's a very intentional word. That's not a passive seeing of God. No, to observe something is to take special attention or notice of it. God says, tell the Israelite people, I have observed you. I've been watching you. I've seen your affairs. I've, I've taken note of your suffering day by day, year by year. My, my eye has not been blind to your sorrow. I've, I've not turned away from you. I've not forgotten you. I observe you. I have been watching. Friends, our God is not a deistic being. No, no. the God that we worship is, is self-existent within himself. He, he does not need us, but yet he has chosen to enter into the affairs of the people that he has made. He sees us, he observes us, and he cares for us. And listen, this is not only just a, a passive or a, uh, an observation of us in our immediate circumstances. It's not like God is, is walking along and then out of the corner of his eye happened to catch Israel in Eden and be like, oops, I didn't see you. You fell down. Now I see you. I'm observing you. Let me help you get up. That, that's not what we have here. There's more to this observing than that. Look, look down at verse 22 in your Bibles. Do you, do you see in verse 22 how God says that when he delivers them from Egypt, he will lead all the women of Egypt to actually give the Israelites their silver and gold jewelry and their clothes so that they shall, it says, plunder the Egyptians. Strange verse there, but that is not a new idea. Back in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 to 16, when God was making a covenant with Abraham, centuries before this moment in Exodus chapter 3, God sovereignly knew what was going to happen to them, and he spoke of it with such precision. Genesis chapter 15 says, Then the Lord said to Abraham, 
Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Their slavery was not a surprise to God. He saw every moment of it. But, he says, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And listen to these words. Afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. All the way back in Genesis chapter 15, God told Abraham that his descendants would be enslaved. And he told them that he would bring them out. And he told them that they would come out with great possessions. That they would plunder the Egyptians. And so, to the Israelites who hear this from Moses... And to the original readers of this text, this would have been truly amazing. They would have immediately made the connection to Genesis chapter 15 and to the promises of God. They would have have quickly realized that, that God has not been absent at all. That God was sovereignly involved in their circumstances all along. That he had a plan. And even though it didn't always make sense to them along the way, he was working it together for their good and for his glory. He says, I have observed you. Church, those words. Do you feel unseen by God? Do you feel unseen by the Lord and by others in your life? Do you feel like you could come in today, sit down, worship, walk out, nobody would know the difference? Do you feel like if you died today, nobody would miss you for a moment? Do you feel like your trials have been unseen by God, that somehow he has forgotten you in your suffering and in your waiting, that he must be blind to your trials, otherwise he would have done something about them by now, otherwise he would have stopped them by now. Church, he sees you. He has never not seen you. When it feels like he is most absent, he is often most at work. Promises that feel like they have been forgotten by you are still coming about according to his good word. He sees you, church. He sees what glorious words for us as Christians in this fallen and broken world. You know, I've been, I've been reading the, the Gospel of John in my devotions uh, this year. And, and in John chapter 1, Nathaniel meets Jesus for the first time. And he doubts who Jesus is. But Jesus just says to him, Nathaniel, before I called you, I saw you under that fig tree where you were sitting. And it just melts him. He says, you are the Lord. You are the Lord. There's something very powerful about being seen by the king of the universe. For no matter how unseen you feel this morning, please hear these words from God's word to you today. God sees you. He sees you and he he cares for you. He's not blind to your circumstances. He may not change your circumstances right away. He may not immediately alter them. He may cause you to endure endure through suffering but he sees you and he will deliver you and he will even cause you to plunder Egypt he will prosper you despite that sorrow our God sees and our God cares and our God works on our behalf point number three he works for us he works for us C.S. Lewis um C.S. Lewis is a a famous author. He's written many books. He wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and The Tales of Narnia. uh, And he wrote many other books as well. And so C.S. Lewis talks about the, the nature of love. And he talks about how so much of our love for others is actually self love for ourselves. 
We love others so much of the time because we want to be loved or appreciated in return. We serve that person because we want them to ultimately serve us. We love them because we want something from them. We, we need acceptance from others, and so we love them in order to be accepted. Now, not all of our love is this way, but much of it is. Our love is often a distorted kind of, of selfishness on display. But friends, consider what this text tells us about our God. He is the I am. He exists entirely in himself. He absolutely does not need anything from you or from me. He does not need our praise. He does not need more glory. He does not need more relationship. He has all of that within his triune self. Even when he tells us to bring glory to his name, it's not because he's lacking. It's because he wants us to enjoy that which is most satisfying in all the world. He doesn't need anything. And so the aseity of God makes the love of God all the more amazing. In verses 18 to 22, God tells Moses and the people of Israel what he will do for them. He's going to deliver them. He's going to save them from their oppression. He says, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. The I am says, I'm going to work for you. The I am says, I am going to work on your behalf. I am going to fight for you, my people. But, but think about how amazing this is. It's one thing if, if God needed something from us. I'll scratch your back. You scratch mine by praising me for who I am. But he doesn't need anything. He's perfectly content in himself. And so to have someone who is entirely set apart from us, different from us, but who chooses to, to still look at us and to observe us and then to work on our behalf, it's extraordinary love. <laughs> Friends, this is not our kind of love, right? When we have someone in our life who is costly to us or somebody who's difficult or not easy to be around, someone who creates lots of problems or, or drama, our desire as people is to, to remove them from our lives. Let's, let's cut them off. Let's, let's block them. Let's ignore them. Let's pretend they're not there. We need our space. We're going to benefit from not being near to them. But our God, who needs nothing from us, our God who has everything perfectly within himself, not only looks at us in our slime and in our sin and in our suffering, he looks at how much we are going to cost him through the gospel, but instead of blocking us, instead of turning a blind eye to us, instead of walking away from us, he has compassion and he moves towards us. Amen. That's what we see in this text, and that's what we ultimately see in Jesus and in the gospel. Because listen, Exodus chapter 3 is just a picture of the gospel. Exodus chapter 3 is directly tied to Jesus and his work on our behalf. The God here who says, I am the I am, he is the one who became man for us. He is the one who did not need to become man, but who lovingly entered into our world. The Jesus that we worship is the same one who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. His holiness and his, his glory, uncomparable un in the, the, the world, but it's veiled in human flesh now. But he's no less divine. He's no less self-existent. He's no less the I am. Which is why in John chapter 8, when the Pharisees, the religious leaders around Jesus, are angry with Jesus because he claimed to be greater than their father Abraham, a big claim. They get angry with him and say, how can you say that? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, 
before Abraham was, I am. I am. And when he said that, the Pharisees knew exactly what he was saying because they picked up boulders to stone him to death because of the blasphemy that they thought that he had just uttered. But it wasn't blasphemy, friends, because Jesus is the I am. He is the self-existent one. He is God in flesh. He's always been and he will always be. He is dependent on no one and nothing. He exists happily within his triune nature, eternally begotten of the Father. This Jesus did not need you. He did not need me, but he came for us. He so wants to be in relationship with you. He so wants to know and in, you to know and enjoy his eternal love that he observes you in your sin. He observes you in the mistakes you've made even this week and the, the shame that you feel even in this moment, your lack of self-control, your, your pride, your anger. He, he sees all of that, but the I am, the one who showed himself in that burning bush, still says, I love you and I am coming to you. And he does so not just by performing powerful miracles and signs like he did against Pharaoh. He comes to us and he fights for us by dying our death for us. He sees the greatest enemy of our souls, the, the ultimate Pharaoh in life, sin and death. He, he sees how we're enslaved to our sinfulness and to our condemnation and to before his holy justice. He observes that we are hopeless in our sin and shame, but yet he works for us. And he works for us by dying for us. This is glorious news. Family, we should celebrate the I am. We should glorify his name. We should honor him in every area of our lives. He is the I am. Guess what? Because he's the I am, it's okay for you to be weak today. It's okay for you to be really, really dependent. Some of you are fighting so hard to be perfect in life. Some of you are fighting so hard to hold everything together in your own strength. You're trying to be self-existent. My friend, come to the I am. He's okay with your weakness. He wants you to be dependent because it's in your weakness that his strength is made perfect. We should celebrate him. We should celebrate the I am because we're not deists. Because the God of the Bible, the I am, he is not set apart. He, is, he cares for us. He comes near to us. He loves us. Some of you feel like you need to clean yourselves up before you come to this holy God. You don't because he's come to you through Jesus Christ. And he's paid the penalty for your sins. And so all you need to do today to find life and hope and peace is to say, I believe in the I am and the work that he has done for me. And guess what? We celebrate the I am today because he's given us the ability to live lives that are pleasing to him. His aseity is our plumb line in life and he gives us wisdom and strength to live a life pleasing to him. We do not need to love others in order to be loved back, like C.S. Lewis said. We do not need to serve in order to be served. We can love those who are unlovable. We can be patient with those who are difficult, even as Moses will be with the Israelite people. We can love those who cost us greatly because God, the I Am, has loved us greatly and made us his own and given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And so we can rest in him and we can live for him. Friends, this is the great I am, the one that we serve, the one that we should celebrate with our entire being. May we do so by his grace, for his glory, and for our joy.
Would you stand with me as we pray?